This is Generation Justice, a multimedia project that trains youth to harness the power of media. I'm Andrew Vera. And I'm Yusuf Amr. Right now, in our country, our most important resources are under attack. Tonight, we will look at the fight for Medicaid and the open internet. We will speak with State Senator J.R. Pino about the future of Medicaid in our state. Then, we will speak to Lucia Martinez, a digital campaign organizer for Free Press, who organized a nationwide action to save the net. First things first, we've got some great music ahead. Here's The People by Common. Senator Jerry Ortiz Pino started his career as a social worker. He was also the executive director of New Mexico's Advocates for Children and Families for several years. For the last 12 years, Senator Ortiz Pino has served in New Mexico State Senate, where he's focused on issues like health care, behavioral health, and early childhood education. Some of the senator's latest work is to try and develop tax solutions to keep the state's Medicaid and education programs running. DJ fellow Christina Rodriguez is here with the Senator Ortiz Pino. This is Christina Rodriguez with Generation Justice, and I'm here with Senator Jerry Ortiz Pino, who has been representing District 12 in Albuquerque since 2005. We are so happy to have you here today in the studio. Welcome to Generation Justice. Well, thank you, Christina. I look forward to this. Will you please tell our listeners more about yourself? I'm a retired social worker, lifetime New Mexico resident, born in Santa Fe, and moved here to Albuquerque uh, after working in Las Vegas and Taos and Las Cruces over the years. Moved here in 77 and have been here ever since. And after 42 years in social work, I retired and got elected to the legislature. Can you tell us more about what was this year's special session like in the legislature and what was the purpose of it? Well, you know, we spent 60 days in January, February, and March working on a budget for the state that would be balanced. Our Constitution requires a balanced budget. That is, revenue that we anticipate getting has to match the expenditures we want to make. We had reserves in the past. Just three years ago, we had 11% of our money was in reserves. That was Each percent is about $60 million. So we had you know, $650, $700 million in reserves. We went through that the last two years because our revenue each year fell short of what we thought when we made the budget. So we ate up the res- half the reserves two years ago and the rest of it last year. So this year we had practically no reserves left leaving us with a big hole in the budget, uh, about a $100 million hole is what it amounted to. The governor, she vetoed a, a, about $250 million in taxes. You added all those up together, it's about $200 million, $250. And what was her <clears throat> intention with vetoing those new taxes? She said she had promised the people of the state that she would never approve new taxes, and so she couldn't approve them, and she didn't want to balance the budget on the backs of the working families. Well. No working family that that I'm aware of pays the hospital provider fee, and they don't pay for uh, interstate carriers, those big trucks that haul goods across our state. They don't even really 
stop here, you know, except for gas. And I know that recently you had two columns published about uh, Governor Susana Martinez's unnecessary cuts to the Medicaid system. Um, What can you tell us about the money that she rejected? How does that work? Well, the hospital association had offered $80 million in provider fee. They're not stupid. They, They looked at the books and they knew that if they didn't come up with that money to keep the Medicaid program afloat, Medicaid would have to cut services, which we're in the process of doing, and that one of the services that would be cut might be hospital reimbursement. Over the last three years, they've done pretty well because the Affordable Care Act, the Medicaid expansion piece of it, has reimbursed them at a higher rate than they used to get. And that's been good for the people of the state. The hospitals are in good shape. It's mostly federal money, 95, at least 95% federal money. So they offered that $80 million up. $40 million of it would have been available for Medicaid to go into the Medicaid program as the state share for matching federal dollars. The other $40 million would have been available to the health department, CYFD, the rest of state government. $40 million would have been matched for Medicaid, would have been matched at least three to one, probably more like four or five to one. What it depends on is whether the person who's getting the service used to be eligible for Medicaid or is only eligible because they're part of the new population. If they're part of that new population, it's matched nine to one. So that makes it much better deal for the state than the other one. At any rate, even at a, at a minimum, it would have been three to one. So that's why I came up with a $120 million figure. $40 million, if she had signed that, would have brought in $120 million federal dollars for the Medicaid program. Without that, 160 total, they're now having to cut Medicaid. And so they're having hearings around the state right now, the Human Services Department is. And they've begun identifying ways in which they can save money. And it's totally unnecessary. There was no need to do that. The hospitals were willing to pay for this expansion. And her decision is going to mean, undoubtedly, it's going to mean less services for people in New Mexico. Either they'll pay more for them or they'll have available fewer services. Or, you know, it may be that some doctors won't go for the uh, reduced payments, and so they'll back out of the program. They won't even be available at all. It's just wreaking havoc with a program that had been working pretty well for the last two years and didn't need this for crying out loud. How do other states find ways to manage their Medicaid money? Well, it, it's, it's interesting. At these national meetings that we go to, we, what we found out was that most states now are using some form of a provider tax. That is a, a fee that's charged to a hospital for every day of care that they provide. And then that money, once it's charged, becomes state money, and then it can be used to match. So that's where this idea came from. It came from other states. Some 25 or 30 other states are using that mechanism. So for a state that didn't want to tax its own citizens, this made good sense. But even that didn't satisfy the governor's high threshold for any new revenue coming in. My fear is that she really does not want new revenue. It's not just that it's a tax. It's that it's a new revenue, and she doesn't want government to be bigger. She wants it to be smaller than when she took office. And it is. We've got the same size budget that we did when she took office. And, of course, costs have gone up, so you know government is smaller. And we have something like 2,500 fewer state employees than when she took over. Now, that means that caseworkers have twice as high a caseload. That means that nurses have twice as many patients. That means all sorts of teachers and 
and the university faculty are covering more students. And it means that people aren't getting as good a service as they used to get. But just the appearance of government is getting shrunk. So what do you think is going to happen with the next governor? Well, I'm hoping that the next governor would take another look at this because um, we've seen other states like Kansas where the governor refused to increase taxes. And finally, the legislature overrode his veto and made him because they had cut back on the schools, they had cut back on health programs, and there just was nothing left to cut. And so if a governor takes that kind of you know, single-minded, unthinking position that no new taxes, no new taxes, that it leaves the state in a very difficult position. You cannot continue to provide the same level of service when costs go up and you have no new revenue coming in. And so I think a new governor will take a look at that and won't make the same pledge. Now, it depends on who the next governor is, of course, and, and there are some people running who probably would be glad to take that pledge. Um, without any names being mentioned, I, w- I would hope that we wouldn't fall for that again because it puts the state in a very difficult position. Um, the other thing about Medicaid spending that's so important is, and I think a new governor is going to be the one that would have to bear the burden of this, the federal government is talking about changing the way Medicaid works. It's part of this Trump care debate that's going on in Washington right now. But one thing seems to be pretty sure that all the versions have Medicaid becoming a block grant. That is, instead of the current system where whatever we spend in state money is matched three, four, nine to one with federal dollars, we'll get a fixed amount of federal money, let's say $6 billion a year. And we'll have to make that cover our health care. And it won't go up. The block grants notoriously never get bigger. The needs may be bigger. The number of people served might grow, but the amount of money available won't grow. So any expansion will have to come out of state money. Under that setup, it's much, much smarter for us to spend as much as we can now to deal with some health conditions. You know, if you, if you can heal cleft palates or reduce diabetes levels and do all sorts of things right now while you've got the federal money, you won't have to pay for them later. But the other thing is the amount we get in a block grant will probably be based on what we're currently spending at the time they create the block grant. So it's smarter for us to spend more now and not be foolishly thrifty and cut back on Medicaid and then have to live with that lower figure for the rest of our state's existence. This is being really foolish not to spend as much as we can right now to try to reach as many people with health care as we can, saving ourselves money in the long run. For right now, it also increases the likelihood that our block grant would be larger than otherwise. What do the next steps look like considering the future of health care in the United States as a whole? There's a little part of me that says a block grant would be kind of interesting for the state to have depending on how large it is, because I think that there are ways in which we could structure a block grant to reduce the amount of waste and, and duplication and, and administrative burden that goes on currently. We probably spend 30% of our Medicaid dollars now on just administrative shuffling of papers and filing of claims back and forth and reviews and prior approvals and 4-HMOs. We could do away with all of that and just have a very simple state-run Medicaid program that could do some pretty innovative things. So part of me is attracted to it. Part of me is scared to death of it because if we don't get as much as we're getting now, it could mean some serious reductions. But it would be up to us to make the decisions about how to reduce. My big fear is that behavioral health programs would get the short end of the stick. Hospitals will be right there. Their services are always going to be needed. Nursing homes, there's a growing elderly population. They're paid out of the Medicaid. They get about a third of the Medicaid dollars now. And 
Children's services are going to be needed, pregnant teens and new moms and the care of the kids in the hospital and so on. What's likely to get cut back each year if the Medicaid uh, block grant doesn't get bigger every year is going to be behavioral health. That's that's going to be the expendable part of the budget, and the state will have to pick that up. That's the part of it that scares me. How can people get involved in this issue? What, what are things to look out for next? Well, we'll make another effort, I'm pretty sure, in this coming session in January in the legislature because we have to create a new budget in January for the year that starts in July of next year. Um, we'll, we'll have another shot at that Medicaid provider tax. It's not a Medicaid provider tax. It's a provider tax that would be used for Medicaid and because uh, it, it's a tax on all their services. And I think it would really be good if people started contacting the governor and saying, please, rethink your opposition to this. It's the best way of making sure that New Mexicans stay healthy, of providing access to health care, and of reaching all the people in the state with some basic health services that otherwise they won't be able to get. If enough people contact her, I think she might be able to figure out a, an explanation for why this is not really a tax increase. It's just a, a provider fee, and it could be accepted on that basis. But if she doesn't, it's going to be very difficult to come up with the revenue that we need to keep state government at least at the level it is right now. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? The governor treats taxes as if they're a penalty, as if it's punishment of some kind. And I think almost all of her opposition to taxes stems from that basic mindset that if I have to pay a tax, I'm being punished. I've never looked at it that way. I mean, I've always thought of paying taxes as what we need all of us to do to provide a basic level of those services that none of us could have if we had to buy them on our own. I couldn't afford to send my kids to private schools. I sent them to the public schools, which were supported by everybody, even people who don't have kids in school. So now when I don't have kids in school, I still pay the taxes. I'm willing to have that because it's my turn to help other kids. And it's part of being in a community. It's not a penalty. It's not a punishment. It's the price you pay for having a well-educated population. When I want to hire somebody, I want to make sure that they can read and write and understand and work as a member of a team and have some creative thoughts. And when somebody else gets treatment in a hospital, that benefits me. It, it's not like I have to pay for my own health care or they should pay for their own health care. No, we all, we all share and benefit when there's a healthy population out there. I get sick less often if my neighbors are well. So I, I just think it's a mindset about taxes that, that we have to start turning around. Taxes are not penalties. Taxes are what we as Americans get to pay to make sure that America is strong and our communities are safe. Thank you so much, Jerry, for joining us in the studio today and for helping break down, you know, Medicaid and the budget and the legislative session. Yeah, it gets kind of complicated. It really just amounts to the more we can raise locally, the more the federal government will make available and we can have a stronger health care system that way. Thank you so much. Good. Thank you, Christina. This is Christina Rodriguez with Generation Justice. Thank you, Senator Ortiz Pino, for sharing the fact that New Mexicans should help each other. For example, when you explain that people who do not have children contribute to public education to benefit the whole community. And thank you for sharing that taxes are not a punishment, just a way to improve the community. Now, here is Ball of Confusion by The Temptation. Skin. 
Wednesday, July 12th was Net Neutrality Day, a national day where people across the country shared why they care about net neutrality. National organizations and businesses like Netflix, Twitter, and Amazon took part in the digital action. Two million comments were sent to the FCC in support of net neutrality. One of those organizations is Free Press, which fights for our rights to connect and communicate. My co-host, Yusuf Amr spoke with Lucia Martinez, digital organizer for Free Press and longtime GJ member, about net neutrality and the day of action. Let's join them now. This is Yusuf Amr with Generation Justice, and I'm here with GJ long-term member Lucia Martinez, who now lives in D.C. as a digital campaigner and Kairos Fellow at Free Press. Today, we are talking about net neutrality and the day of action on July 12th. Welcome to Generation Justice, Lucia. Will you please tell us more about yourself? My name is Lucia Martinez. I'm originally from Albuquerque, New Mexico, but I currently live and work in D.C. And I work for an organization called Free Press and Free Press Action Fund. What we do at Free Press and Free Press Action Fund is we do media and advocacy work on issues of media and tech policy. I work on things like net neutrality, anti-surveillance and privacy work, and we also work on fighting um, media consolidation and defending press freedom. So what is net neutrality? So net neutrality is the Internet's guiding principle that protects free speech online. It's often referred to as the First Amendment on the Internet. And because of the federal communications net neutrality rules, our Internet service providers like Comcast and AT&T and Verizon are prevented from blocking our certain content online. So without the net neutrality rules, internet service providers would be able to prevent any person from accessing any website. They could make us pay more to access a full internet. So we already pay a lot for internet access, but they could charge everyday people or small businesses even more money to access all of the wonders of the internet that we love. Why is net neutrality important? Net neutrality is important to me because without net neutrality, there's no activism online. Right now, the internet is the most important organizing tool and, frankly, communication tool of our time. Net neutrality basically prevents corporations from gaining control over the internet. And we would have a lot of problems as activists and people that do advocacy work if corporations were able to control our speech on the internet. They could block political speech on the internet if it didn't align with whatever their corporation's best interests are. And they could essentially crush movements online. So net neutrality is important to me because thinking about a future in which corporations can control our speech on the Internet is really terrifying. Because right now, there are a lot of like, really important fights for justice that have gained traction online, like Black Lives Matter and the fight for indigenous rights at Standing Rock. Like, we wouldn't have heard about those movements if not for the open Internet, specifically in the instance of what was going on at Standing Rock. The mainstream media completely ignored the water protectors for months, and it was through Twitter and through Facebook and through other social media platforms that activists were able to talk about what was happening and that we were actually able to see via video what was happening to the water protectors. So that's why it's important to me. I see the Internet as 
a really important tool for organizing and movement building, and we can't allow for corporations to, to take that from us. Why is net neutrality important for communities of color? The history of this country, the mainstream media has either ignored communities of color or has shown news and entertainment that is riddled with stereotypes about our communities. The open internet has allowed for communities of color to take back that narrative and, and for us to tell our own stories. Like Generation Justice, for example. Generation Justice does incredible work training young people and young activists in multimedia journalism and Generation Justice really cares about telling the stories of our different communities in Albuquerque. And then we put those stories out on the open internet. And it's because of net neutrality that anyone can access those. Comcast can't stop a story that may be anti-Comcast in some way. They wouldn't be able to stop people from accessing that on the internet. Because the internet is used as a, a tool for activism, we really need to maintain net neutrality in order to, to protect that tool. Otherwise, we're going to be in trouble. I completely agree with you because net neutrality is very important to me too for school and for many other things. Yeah. One of the other reasons that I think it's really important is the internet is a tool for activism, but it's also a tool for accessing education. I went to a public high school in Albuquerque and our curriculum didn't teach my history as a Chicana woman from New Mexico. And when it did, those history books were written by people that were not of my community and, and didn't tell the full story. And so I could use the internet to access parts of, of that history that wasn't being taught to me in school. And I could actually use the internet to make connections with other folks that were feeling a similar way about education that maybe wasn't meant to empower young students of color. It kind of reminds me of me, how I can reach out to my family and friends that are outside the country and that I can't just go to. And it makes me feel like they're going to take away some of my rights as a human because I can't communicate with other people from my family and I won't be able to talk to them as freely as I would just now. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And a lot of this conversation is rooted in like just talking about the U.S. and what it means here, but this is a global issue. Sometimes like we don't always take into account that we have folks with families that are all over the world and protecting our right to communication online is really important. And also protecting our ability to speak out about our beliefs across the world online is really important. Yeah, so that's a really great point. Thank you for making that and reminding me of that. Tell us more about the July 12th Internet Wide Day of Action for Net Neutrality. So for a long time, organizations and everyday people have been fighting to protect net neutrality. So in 2015, the Federal Communications Commission adopted the Title II net neutrality rules, which protects our, our right to, to accessing an internet free of discrimination from internet service providers. So essentially these rules protect us from internet service providers and you know any interference that they might try. So this was a huge win, but with the new administration um, came a new chairman of the Federal Communications Commission. And this chairman, his name is Ajit Pai, used to be a lawyer for Verizon an internet service provider. And so his interests, in my opinion, don't align with public interest. And so now he's working very hard to repeal the FCC's net neutrality rules, which would be very bad and would allow for corporations to control the internet. And so July 12th, organizations, tech companies, and everyday people came together to take a stand for the internet. We refer to an internet-wide day of action to save net neutrality. So more than 125 websites internet users and organizations participated in an online protest against the FCC's plan to get rid of net neutrality. About 2 million people commented to the FCC 
in favor of net neutrality. Five million people emailed Congress telling them that they support the net neutrality rules and we don't need to get rid of them or change them. 124,000 people made phone calls to Congress and net neutrality trended on both, both Facebook and Twitter. We were hoping that if you didn't know what net neutrality was on July 11th, that by July 12th, the end of the day, you'd know and you'd care. The Day of Action was really about educating people about what's at stake if we lose net neutrality and getting people to take action to save it. And I think it was really successful. Facebook, Google, Snapchat, Netflix were all companies that participated in the Day of Action in some way. A ton of organizations sent emails to their lists and, and hosted events. I know Generation Justice hosted several events. So it was really anybody who uses the Internet and really cares about protecting our access to speech on the Internet came together to protect it. It was really awesome. Wow, that was really interesting how all these companies came together to protect net neutrality. Yes, it was awesome. Companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter all have, you know, they're a huge platform. Everybody knows about them. And so them taking part in this action was really great. But honestly, I want to give more credit to, like, the everyday people and the organizers who have been working really hard for years to make sure that, that we preserve an open Internet. It was great to see how many people really care about net neutrality and are willing to take time out of their day to call Congress or take time out of their day to, you know, write a, write a letter to the FCC about how important these rules are. So what are the next steps? How can people pressure the FCC? We still need people to send comments to the FCC. Right now, the FCC is accepting public comment on their attempt to get rid of net neutrality rules, and public comments really do matter. And we have until August 16th to get in all of the public comments possible. It's great that 2 million people commented, but we still need more. This administration has a track record of, of ignoring facts and ignoring the realities that people face on the ground um, in everyday life. And so we need to be loud enough that they're not able to ignore us. So please send a comment to the FCC, call Congress. We have a tool that makes doing both of these things really easy and will also give you more information about net neutrality. If you go to battleforthenet.com, once again, that's battleforthenet.com, our handy-dandy tool will pop up and it'll help you make a comment to the FCC and it gives you some pre-written language you can send to that language or you can craft your own. And then after you submit your comment to the FCC, a tool will pop up that if you insert your phone number, it will call you and connect you with your Congress people. So you don't even have to like look up their numbers and dial them. The call tool makes it super easy to, to call your members of Congress. At this point, we don't want Congress to take any action when it comes to net neutrality. The Federal Communications Commission has net neutrality rules that work. We don't want for Congress to push any kind of legislation right now. We just need Congress to reaffirm to the FCC that we need to keep these net neutrality rules and we can't lose them. So we're, we're, t we're telling Congress that, you know, these net neutrality rules are working, so please leave them alone. And that's our message at this point. So, Lucia, what are some things that could happen if we lose net neutrality? There are a lot of things that could happen. Basically, hand over the reins of the Internet to corporations that don't have the public interest in mind. And they could do things like block content. They could create fast lanes and slow lanes on the internet, which means that certain people or small businesses could be charged more for, for their stuff to have any kind of audience online. And the fight for net neutrality is really a civil rights issue. I guess you can think of it as protecting freedom of speech on the internet. You can also think about it as like 
protecting civil rights online. Communities of color use the internet heavily to change narratives about our communities, to counter stereotypes, to organize, to tell our, our own stories and um, find news about our communities that the mainstream doesn't tell. And so having access to the open internet is really, really important for communities of color in the United States who are under attack on so many different fronts right now and are being attacked by this administration. We need to be able to retain our, our ability to communicate with each other, our ability to organize with each other, and our, our ability to educate ourselves. And that's what's at stake if net neutrality is taken away. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you would like to add? Yeah. If you'd like to learn more about our work at Free Press, you can visit freepress.net. And if you'd like to learn more about net neutrality, you can visit savetheinternet.com. The other thing I would ask folks to do is just, you know, talk to people about net neutrality and why it's important to you. I have an organizing background, so the Internet is important to me as a tool for organizing. And I, I know that corporations don't have my best interest in mind. And I know that everybody should be able to speak freely online and organize and use the, the open Internet as a tool for organizing and movement building. And that's why I care about net neutrality. Everyone has different reasons. A lot of people love the Internet. <laughs> it's a weird and cool place. And I think we're still learning the depths to which we rely on it at this moment in time. But let's come together to protect it. So talk to your friends, talk to your family. Many of them probably haven't heard about net neutrality, but let's try to change that. And um, let's make it something that folks can easily come together and protect. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate all the work that Generation Justice has done to help safeguard net neutrality. Thank you. For Generation Justice, this is Yusuf Farmer. Thank you, Lucia, for telling us more about net neutrality and how it would affect us. I would like to add how much you taught me about net neutrality and how it would affect not just people in the United States, but all over the world. Thank you for saying that by taking away the internet, you would take away a human right. Now, here's Somebody's Watching Me by Rockwell. Now, let's get back into some music. Here's My Country by Nako and Medicine for the People. We feel that racism and sexism and class separation, that these are desecrations. And we feel that the American flag does not represent integrity, honor, justice, or truth. My country, tears of thee, sweet land of poverty, for thee I Here's The Message by M.I.A.
We've come to the end of another great show. We'd like to thank our guests, Senator Jerry Ortiz Pino and Lucia Martinez for sharing your work with us. Production assistance came from Alicia Hernandez, Cristina Rodriguez, Katie Zuni, and Roberta Rayel. And thanks to all of our youth producers. We cannot do what we do without you. Stay connected with us. Check out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all our past video programs, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch videos, and so much more. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe and rate us. We're also active on social media, so make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, Khan Alma Health Foundation, the Applegate Community Foundation, and of course all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate. I'm Yusuf Farmer. And I'm Andrew Rivera. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Good night and have a wonderful week. I need another story Something to get off my chest My life gets kind of boring Need something that I can confess Till on my sleeves I stained red From all the truth that I've said Come by it honestly, I swear Thought you saw me wink, no Voice of racism preaching the gospel is devilish. A fake church called the prophet Muhammad a terrorist. Forgetting God is not religion, but a spiritual bond. And Jesus is the most quoted prophet in the Quran. They bombed innocent people trying to murder Saddam. When you gave them those chemical weapons to go to war with Iran. This is the information that they hold back from Peter Jennings. Because Condoleezza.